Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I've recently been talking about the doctrine of hell and some prominent theologians who have recently decided that, uh, well, ultimately, there'll be nobody residing in hell, that all uh, will be saved. And this is broadly called universalism. We've talked a little bit about it, but my guest has written about it, a two-volume, 1,300-page book called The Devil's Redemption, A New History and Interpretation of Christian Universalism. Uh, Michael McClymond uh, is also author of a forthcoming book, Martyrs, Monks, and Mystics. Uh, Paulus Press should have it out next summer. He is a professor of modern Christianity at St. Louis University. Mike, good to have you back here. Thanks. It's good to be with you, Al. Let's go some just basic questions uh, to begin. What is universalism in light of our conversation today? Well, if you look at a dictionary, the word has different meanings in different contexts, but in the context of theology, it simply refers to the idea that that all human beings, and some would say all intelligent creatures, which would include angels, will finally be saved and be with God eternally. So it's a teaching about the ultimate outcome. It doesn't specify how that comes about, and that's why I wrote a book of uh, 1,300 pages, as I found a, a wide variety of different forms of universalism, and some of the arguments for one form actually contradict those that are used for another form, so mm-hmm. I had to kind of trace that out. Yeah. Has it been traditionally considered a formal heresy? Um, the probably the, the closest you get to an official church uh, declaration on universalism is was at the Fifth Ecumenical Council. Now, obviously, that's very significant for Catholics, for Orthodox, for at least some Protestants who look very seriously to the councils sure. as well. So, at the Fifth Ecumenical Council, Origen, who was the early church teacher associated with universalism, is condemned by name, and. The historical reception of that was it was always interpreted as that he was condemned for his teaching that all everyone is saved. So that that is a now there's people trying to wiggle out of that recently, okay. saying um, that well maybe he wasn't condemned for his his eschatology his views of the ultimate outcome, but um, I, I don't think that's really fully plausible, and certainly that's not the historical reading. Of the, of the of the text has there ever been a time in uh, Christian history where universalism has been considered either dominant or a, a you know a, a likely option well there um, first of all there there was was more tolerance for individual universalists these are individual figures not as official church doctrine or dogma but individuals held to universalism in the Eastern Church, one would be Gregory of Nyssa, um, Isaac of Syria, or Isaac of Nineveh. Now, the contemporary universalists who are emphasizing this really minimize the extent to which these figures were held at arm's length for centuries because of the distaste of the majority church, Catholic and Orthodox, for these early universalists. Um, I, I did, a, I did a, a survey based upon Brian Daly's book. He's at Notre Dame, very, very careful scholar. And I found uh, just a preponderance. It's like 12 to 1, the number of non-universalists to universalists. And and one of the very telling facts is there are no clear, unambiguous universalists in the second century. 
And so these early, the apostolic fathers, a generation or two after the apostles, there are many references to it, an internal twofold outcome. It only begins with Origen, his book Peri Archon, or translated as On First Principles, that's written after sometime after about 200, which becomes immediately controversial. And then all the early universes are ultimately connected with him. And then Origen is condemned right. by name right. at the yeah. fifth day. So you put all that together, uh, it looks like this was a, a, a false trail, and that the the conciliar church put a, a big um, barrier there, basically said, no, no, this was this was a wrong path, and we're, we're saying no to that. That doesn't mean that Origen is invaluable. He was the first to expound the spiritual meaning in Christian terms of the Song of Songs as a, and, and, and really help to promote the contemplative tradition. So actually I refer to him positively in Martyrs, Monks, and Bismics, my new book. It's just his eschatology of universal salvation. That was what the historic church uh, turned against. Um, but the I- irony, though, is that the, the contemporary universes are seizing hold of the one element of origin that was always considered most dubious. <laughs> yes, right. It'd be right. like if you, I don't know, you found, uh, I don't know, the time that George Washington told a lie, and you and you, and you you wanted to imitate that and not the positive <laughs> things, you know. Right, right. Uh, were there conditions, cultural conditions, um, certain social pressures uh, that led Origen to talk about universal salvation? Yes, I, most definitely so. I have found... A, a recurring pattern, often in times of great turmoil and when there's just vast social evil emerging. Origen um, went through a traumatic early life in which he saw his father being led off to die as a martyr. And Mm. in the stories, Origen wanted to die with him, and his mother hid his clothes. (laughs) So he wouldn't go out to... He he wasn't wanting to be a naked martyr. (laughs) Modest, yes. It's quite an interesting story. So, And then he had thrust upon him the the task of raising this whole household by himself. So it was a very difficult early life, which he did with his prodigious intellectual gifts. He was an incredibly hard worker. But um, the thing is that he was doing his work in the midst of this context of Alexandria, which is is this melting pot of all these different religious systems, and had the largest library in the world by reputation, a million scrolls. Wow. Um, yeah. that much of which perished, unfortunately, in a fire that broke out later. But this vast library, all these different religious, this religious marketplace, and one of the things that the um, non-Christians were pressing on the Christians is, your God in the Old Testament seems to be cruel and wicked. And how can you believe in that kind of God? The same arguments later came up in the deist movement. They were pressing really hard this issue of why is there evil in the world and why does God seem to be associated with that? And I think Origins Universalism emerged as a, uh, at least in part, as a response to that, to try to say, well, well look, there's an ultimate outcome yeah. where even you know, suffering leads to, to good, a, good, a good end for everyone. Yeah. And that, in that way, he thinks he's been able to say in a consistent way that God permitted evil uh, in order that a greater good might, may come. Is that yeah. what he would There's actually a, dub, a double theodicy in Origen. There are two ways in which he addressed the post, and they relate both to origins and to, and, and to endings. In the beginning, he held that all souls were equal with God in a pre-existent state before the material world existed, and then they fell away from the love of God. They cooled off and that, that thereby acquired physical bodies. One soul did not fall. This is his 
system, and that was the soul of the of the pre the preexistent soul of that came to inhabit Jesus. But all the other souls fell into bodies. So basically, if you you're getting what you deserve being in this difficult world of suffering right now. It's almost, it's kind of a little bit like Hinduism, like karma. Yeah. So that explains why people are born into a world of suffering. But then there's also on the other end, this idea of a, of a, of a happy ending for everyone. Yeah. So he had two different ways, actually. I think he was driven by this problem of evil. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just curious, pre-existent souls, uh, where did he come up with that? <laughs> Well, it was certainly in the in the water, kind of in the atmosphere in Alexandria. The Gnostic systems that were being created at this time, one of the contemporaries named Valentinus, who was classified as a Gnostic, but he was probably closer to Catholic Christianity than some of the others. He had this, they, they, many of them had this threefold scheme of, of, of a kind of pre-existent state apart from body, then the material world, and then a return to that, that, that spiritual non-bodily condition, that, that triadic pattern I found again and again and again, and it's also true in New Age teaching today, right. where, where people have the idea that after I die, my soul returns to the bosom of eternity mm-hmm. once again, like the helium balloon in your chest, you know, <laughs> the moment you die, it gets released, what happens, it naturally rises, but the, the problem, of course, there is that it means that we, if this were true, we would be saved on the basis of of what we are by nature, not by grace. Exactly. It would be a naturalistic salvation, just as a helium balloon naturally rises because it's lighter. You, you mentioned Gnosticism. Is Gnosticism uh, complicit in other outbursts of universalism? Oh yes, there's there's this this is the part of my my two volume book that became most controversial. David Bentley Hart, of course accused me of being a tinfoil, hot-wearing conspiracist. Yeah. <laughs> Your own little book of about 200 pages with no footnotes, and I wrote the book um, <laughs> of 18, well, 1,300 pages with 3,500 footnotes and referencing about 3,500 different works in five languages. But he says, I have no documentation. <laughs> so it's cut. But I, no, I have an abundance of, and, and again, I, this is, I just went where I found the evidence. I wanted to know why were some Christians universalists and where did it start? And I was in the bowels of the Yale Library, the second largest university library in the world. I had a handwritten list of universalists in my pocket. And I happened to pull out this volume called The Dictionary of Gnosis and Western Esotericism. It's not a theological book. It's a book by comparative religionists. And to my astonishment, there was an article on every one of the universalists that I had on my list. I was trying to figure out what's connecting these people in Russia and France and Germany and England and early America. And so I just followed. I I went to where the evidence lay. Mm -hmm. And... And in, in, so how does that, I guess what I'm asking then is um, those Christian universalists uh, right. who pick up on some Gnostic teaching, what is the particular uh, version or stream of Gnosticism that compels them to universalism? Well, it's, it, it's a conflating of two different stories, basically. The biblical story is a story of creation, then fall, and then redemption, right. and then um, through Christ, his death and resurrection, and then, of course, consummation. Creation and fall are distinct in Scripture, right? Mm-hmm. The, creation is, the creation is made good, but then Adam and Eve eat from the tree, they fall and are corrupted, but God's grace, of course, 
addresses that in Jesus Christ. But the, the Gnostic narrative is, again, this one I mentioned already, from unity, ultimate unity of all spiritual beings with God, falling into diversity. So it's like creation and fall are the same thing. Yes, yes. And then it's returned to unity. And so these stories get, in origin and in the Christian Gnostic, they get conflated and for instance, Origen says Genesis 3.21, it talks about the skins that, with which uh, the Lord covered um, Adam and Eve after they had sinned. Uh, Origen says those are the, the skins are the physical bodies that they received after they fell from the wow. spirit realm. Wow. So okay. it's a speculative, it's the story before Genesis yeah. that no one has ever read because it's not in Genesis. Yeah. But he reads these two stories together. Mike, hold it there. We've got to take a break. We'll come back and continue conversation. My guest, Dr. Michael McClymond, we're looking at the doctrine of universalism. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Michael McClymond. He is a professor of modern Christianity at St. Louis University and the author of the magisterial two-volume work, The Devil's Redemption, A New History and Interpretation of Christian Universalism. I suppose I should ask you uh, about the title of the book, The Devil's Redemption. Yes, I, uh, I got an interesting email from Amazon from someone who just read the title, I suppose, and congratulated me on arguing for the devil's redemption. <laughs> Let's just say Internet does not do irony very well. <laughs> so it was ironic. I, you know, a good title, I think, should raise a question in a reader's mind. And mm-hmm. so the idea of the devil being redeemed is kind of like the ultimate redemption, if that were to happen, right? So right, I want right. people to kind of think, is it, can the devil be redeemed? And also I'm pressing the universalists on something, because the mode of argument that many universalists use is something like this, that God would fail in his purposes in creation if even one of his creatures right. were ever to become eternally separated from himself. Yeah. And see, if you start from that premise then you would have to say that the fallen angels are redeemed, too. That's right. And we don't have the slightest hint of that in Scripture. And I've also I've challenged some of my universalist friends to give show me a liturgical prayer for the salvation of Satan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is know, it... The Church prays for all abandoned sinners, but there's, it, it simply never prayed for Satan, which is a clear sign that the consensus of the Catholic Church was always that that some creatures would be lost. Yeah. Uh, the, the, go to the place prepared for the devil and his angels um, indicates that uh, that there's a place where they will not escape eternal punishing, as I understand it. Um, let me ask a point that you make uh, in the book, and that is that... Um, Universalism is especially problematic for Catholics. Why so? Yes. Well, <clears throat> there is a, a, a view that is that is uh, prevalent among some Catholics uh, and Catholic spokespersons today, which is that I believe in hell, because that is the teaching of the Catholic Church, but I believe that hell is empty. And mm. this has certainly been influenced by the, the major you know, theologian, Hans Urs von Balthasar. Yes. Mm-hmm. The reason this is problematic, in, in, in my, my reasoning, is that Catholic teaching, magisterial teaching, repeatedly through the centuries, as, docu- as I document in my book, is that those who die in a state of mortal sin go immediately to hell, right. without any exception, without any 
intermission. And it is also Catholic teaching that those who go to hell never come out of hell. There is no sense in which this is like purgatory, that it would be a temporary state. It is, a, it is an endless state of separation from God. So the inference, then, you can make from that is if everyone is saved, that is only possible if no one ever dies in a state of mortal sin. Yeah, yeah. And that's such a preposterous conclusion. I mean, right. think of the people, the you know, the murderer who's shooting down victims and is shot dead by the police at the moment. You know, the, the, you know, if you're a universalist, you have to believe that that person goes immediately into the blissful presence of God. Right. Um, right. It's just not a plausible uh, idea, and it, so it conflicts with with Catholic um, Catholic teaching. I don't think there's a way around it. Um, you pretty much have to evacuate the notion of being in a state of grace or being in a state of moral sin. You have to evacuate that of all meaning. You'd also have to... Hell is empty. Right. You'd also have to, it seems to me, deny that there is, uh, from a Catholic point of view, an ongoing apostolic teaching that is uh, reliable, um, in in particular cases, uh, infallibly taught. Uh, So you'd have to say... What would this? What this church has been wrong for two thousand years on this doctrine? Uh, why do I think I can rely on it in the future? I mean, that's what I would say. Uh, yeah, you know. I, you know, I'm also concerned as someone who's written, who's writing on Christian spirituality that that the the Catholic faith through the centuries has really it, it, it's it's emphasized the need for watchfulness over oneself to yeah. be prepared for death. There's a, a, you know, and the Anglican tradition, you know, that also Jeremy Taylor wrote a book called Holy Living, another one, Holy Holy Dying, this idea of preparing to to be with God. That's a big theme in Catholic spirituality. And if you're a universalist, that seems to just go by the wayside. Well, let's go to, and I do want to get to the biblical material, too, on this, but let me go to the, the question of free will. How does a universal, a universalist must, believe that somehow all will be saved, that God overrides their will, or nobody is stupid enough to choose mortal sin, how do they, how do they get around the idea that we have a fall? Human, the human will was significant enough to throw the creation into sin and death, but then that will uh, isn't uh, strong enough to resist God ultimately. Well, you know, I I say uh, that universalism is really an extreme doctrine because it wants to hang universal salvation of each individual human being who's ever lived by the slender thread of human decision making. Yeah, and I you know I, I tongue in cheek I remember reading about Kim Jong Un's the election where he claimed there was a hundred percent turnout. It was a hundred percent for himself. Yes. <laughs> Yes, and everyone laughs at that because if you have you know multitudes of people making decisions, they're not all going to decide the same way. And so, why would we believe that? Yeah, so just common sense. So there, there are number limited. There are limited number of options here as to how you get to the one hundred percent, not the eighty percent, or the the fifty or eighty or ninety percent. How do you get to a hundred percent? You either because some people plainly are dying impenitent not believing. You have to say, well, they really are believers in some sense, some cryptic sense, um, which, again, is, seems really implausible. Or you have to water down the notion of faith to the point of invisibility. 
Or there is this death theology, Ladislaus Boros, and it's sort of inspired by Karl Rahner and others thought that there was this death encounter with God at the moment of death, yeah. at a final option. And interesting, I found there was a medieval precedent for that. You know, there's nothing <laughs> new under the sun. This idea proposed in the 60s and 70s. Well, again, that's that's a speculation. There's right. nothing directly in Scripture or in Catholic tradition to support that. You could believe that, or or else if it doesn't happen at the moment of death, then there's some other existence after death opportunity to believe. But the whole notion of after post mortem faith is very problematic because if someone is in fact encountering God, you know, Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. There's no place for faith. They are actually encountering God directly. Right. right. So how would they believe? Unless, again, you believe in something like reincarnation. And I'm not a reincarnationist, but at least there's a certain logic there that if you don't learn the first time around, your soul comes back right. in another body, and maybe you learn that time. But um, the, one of the strangest ideas was from Thomas Talbot. He was a philosopher who suggested that God takes people into this sort of chamber and then subjects them to more and more pain until finally they give in. No. They cry uncle. It's wow. like, that doesn't, that sounds like water, <laughs> being waterboarded into heaven. Yeah. <laughs> so those are the different possibilities, and none of them really seems to make um, a lot of sense as, as respecting. Now, David Bentley Hart thinks that there is no such thing as a free choice against God. If you really know who God is, you can't say no to God. It's sometimes, sometimes it's called Socratic intellectualism, to know the good is to do the good. Right. Well, Right. That takes does not take account of human orneriness or what I what I call Im, a little bit impolitely giving the finger to God. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's there's that element of just um, no, you know, just saying no for the sake of saying no, and I think that has to be factored in. Does he reject the notion of original sin? Oh yeah, David Bentley Hart is uh, he's well he comes out of the Eastern Orthodox tradition although he sort of evolved. I think pretty far even from the mainstream there, but yeah, no, he's he's got this notion of of that the will is inherently ordered toward the good, and therefore it will choose the good, and so that, that I guess in his view, you know, if you define the will as always choosing the good, then you've defined sinners out of existence. Exactly, I argue in my response to him, and therefore there are no sinners deserving punishment because no one is really a sinner. Right. Right. <laughs> That's Although people, I think you have to say people make mistakes through ignorance, but I think that's about as far as he would go. Yeah, yeah. I, there's a there's a an incident in which uh, Goebbels is watching the Nazi propagandists is watching uh, the slaughter of uh, Polish uh, people uh, in some newsreel, and he's saying he says to himself, it, "Be hard, my heart, be hard." Yes. Yes. You know, uh, people mm -hmm. do harden their heart, uh, right? So hardness of heart um, is a is a permanent possibility. I think the Pharaoh of the Exodus is the poster boy for yeah. hardness of heart. Yeah, yeah. And I, I discovered through my own study of Exodus, of, and is, is there is one passage where it said he softened his heart, and he says I have, he's basically said I've done wrong. But after that, it heart, his heart hardens again. Yes, yes, that's right. I remember. Uh, Here's one thing that always has struck me as strange about universalists. How do they, I mean, they dismiss Christ's rhetoric 
surrounding eternal damnation. I mean, he right. Jesus uses the most extreme language to describe the state of the finally impenitent. In Matthew 25, it seems definitive. It seems conclusive. you got the sheep and the goats. Universalists don't sound like Christ when they speak of post-mortem options. No, I think the, the typical approach to universe, uh, universal's approach to Scripture, first of all, there's a kind of canon within the canon, and they focus on certain Pauline texts, and mm-hmm. use the word all. Right. I, I think it's they've taken them out of context and are improperly interpreting them, but they tend to then take only a, a highly symbolic uh, interpretation of the passages in the Gospel, speaking of, of the fire the outer darkness, the, the the worm that devours, and also of the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. And they're not even looking at all of Paul's texts, because in Second Thessalonians 1, Paul talks about eternal destruction. It's a very clear passage that yeah. the universes don't really have a good response. Lord Jesus will be revealed from uh, heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, and he'll punish those who do not yes. know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting uh, destruction. They also but, play but around with everlasting, day, right? How would, how, yeah, how would you not say that if universalism is true, that the overall tenor of Jesus' teaching is profoundly misleading? Right, yeah. That, that, that's exactly what I would have to say uh, to people like David Bentley Hart or now Larry Chapp. Hold it there if you would, uh, Mike. We'll come back and continue and go over some of those biblical passages like 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight, where uh, God will be at the end, God will be all in all. I'm Al Cresto. We'll be right back. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Michael McClymond. He is the author of this outstanding work, The Devil's Redemption, A New History and Interpretation of Christian Universalism. And we've been uh, taking a look at this uh, doctrine, which has been uh, affirmed by some noted theologians recently. Uh, Let me ask you about Father Richard Rohr before we go to the scriptural uh, passages. his book, The Universal Christ, uh, makes the case for th- that all will be saved? Well, that that is one of the problems. Uh, the problems are not just with you. It isn't that Rohr begins with a, a biblical or Catholic notion of who God is. He, he, he says everything is Christ. Yeah. That's a literal statement. And the book is dedicated, to, I'm not making this up, to his dog, who he says is Christ to him. Yeah. So anything could be Christ to yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's the I suppose my Starbucks frappuccino, if it's really good, could be Christ to me. I mean, it sounds like I'm being very irreverent toward his teaching, but that's essentially what it is. And it said there's a quote from the book that says, "God loves all things by becoming all things." So he presents a form of monism. Yeah. And in in monism, there's no place for anything to be separated from anything else. Exactly. So I'd yeah. say, yeah, he's a universalist, but he's a monist, and there's there's a massive ethical problem that he never addresses, because if everything is Christ, then, as I say at one point, not only is the Jewish girl hiding in her apartment um, 
Christ, but so is the Nazi stormtrooper kicking in the door. Exactly. You know, if you're, if you're a monist to that degree, you can't distinguish anything as being truly good or evil. Yeah. So it's a profoundly... And, and also this idea, the whole book is designed to separate Jesus from Christ. Irenaeus said in the second century, whoever separates Christ from Jesus represents Antichrist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a very deeply, deeply troubling uh, book. Um, I don't presume to judge everything that Rohr has written. I know that some have, I have friends that have read some of his earlier books. I mean, he's written about 45 books. Right. He wrote a book on King Arthur and on the Enneagram and a whole bunch of other things. But The Universal Christ is just a very troubling book on many levels, only one of which is the Universalist teaching. Yeah. Let me go to some of the biblical material that Universalists use. First uh, Corinthians 15 28, which is a fascinating passage, uh, and it's actually part, it kind of climaxes uh, an argument that Paul is using. Um, he points out that Christ has been raised from the dead, first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, he mentions that the end will come when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Uh, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. And when he has done this, the Son himself will be made subject to God the Father, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. People take that passage, God may be all in all, to indicate that um, nothing will escape uh, the uh, love of God, the eschatological uh, love of God. So, what do you do with it? Michael? Hello, yes, oh, I missed you for a second. Okay. Uh, hello? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, did, did you want me to respond to that, yeah, the that first, argument? Yeah, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight. yeah. Yeah, I, well, first of all, I think you have to look at the context. And so just backing up a few verses before that, no question 28 is a favorite verse of universalist past and present. Um, I would also appeal, uh, I'm not a professional biblical scholar, N.T. Wright, who's probably the preeminent Pauline scholar, right. probably the most famous biblical scholar in the world today, mm-hmm. did a private Bible study for the Roman Catholic Cardinals <laughs> as an Anglican invited Bible scholar, interestingly. But he, he says flat out that Paul is not a universalist. He <laughs> think, does not think the text support this. Right. If you back up a few verses, okay, first of all, 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. If you read closely in text, that's not saying everyone will be made alive in Christ, but all in Christ will be made alive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's how I construe that. Now look at the next verse. Who? First Christ, the first verse. And then verse 23 says, those who are Christ. Right. Who is joined to Christ? Those who are Christ. That doesn't sound like it's referring to everyone. No. It's some subgroup. Um, and then it goes on, and, um, and, and I think 28 is a, is a difficult and kind of a mysterious verse. But God, all in all, I mean, if I had to pin that down, I think if I could connect this to the book of Revelation, where the, the new Jerusalem has descended from heaven, they have no need of the sun to illumine them, for the Lord God is the light of that city. That seems to be a the closest we have to God all in all, a right. picture of it, in, in, to the extent that we could even understand that in Revelation chapter 21. 
Um, yeah, no, I think I think that's I think that's a very uh, I think it's actually spot on uh, to the way to interpret that. Um, the what drives universalists, though it seems to me, is is not the biblical material. Right. Um, the biblical material is made to fit certain assumptions or presuppositions. Uh, theological assumptions that were made earlier about the character of God, uh, the the idea that God Himself cannot. How can God? How can God and the redeemed uh, be joyful in heaven, knowing that some are suffering in hell? That, that's brought up constantly. How do you respond to right. that? Well, yes, I, I agree with you. I think uh, that I think it's this is not primarily an argument from Scripture. I think um, that uh, you know there's, there's a scholar writing all the all the way back in the '80s about what he saw in American Christianity. He called it an, an ethics of civility, in which he said the primary, the, the most foremost imperative was do not offend, not to offend other people. Yeah. And there's no question that. The doctrine of hell is a very offend. If it's offensive for Christians who believe that they are have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, imagine those who are explicitly non-Christian hearing about this. And so, right. I, I think Christians don't want to be on the hot seat and be and be put in a position where they're they have to respond if their Hindu or agnostic or Buddhist uh, friend looks in the eye and said, "Are you? Is it? Am I going to be okay?" If I don't follow your Jesus, right? And universalism is a sort of gives a semblance of Christianity, right? That I can be spiritual and I can call myself Christian, but I don't have to. I can say it, it, you're going to be okay, right. right? To my non-Christian friend, and thereby I, I miss the evangelistic urgency, the missional drive, right? To share the gospel with the, with the real. Think of Francis Xavier, who went to the ends of the earth, to to India and China. To bring the gospel to 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 many nations, yeah. Yeah. because he in part because he he believed that they needed to hear the good news. Yeah, yeah, and he he suffered uh, much uh, to do that. There's tremendous sacrifice among missionaries to bring the gospel to those who haven't heard. Uh, and if those who haven't heard are clearly going to be saved anyways, why make the effort? Well, that's yeah. I use the hypothetical example of the the you know the is there has there ever been a universalist missionary who, <laughs> who went to another country who risked martyrdom, who laboriously learned the language of the people so that he could transcribe their their language onto paper and then translate the whole Bible so they could read it in their original language. You know the things that missionaries have done. Yeah, uh, and yeah, think of the missionary martyrs. Um, so yes, um, Father uh, Damien, who mm-hmm. who knew that he would die of leprosy right. when he went to Molokai, yeah. but was moved with with God's own compassion to 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 preach and to serve among them. Um, that it just and also really just the the rigors of the Christian life of you know Jerome's argument against against universalism was not driven so much by evangelism as it was by his ascetical practice. He said. He said to the universes, "Are you making, are you making the the holy virgin equal to the the harlot?" <laughs> and to him, it was inconceivable that 
uh, that er- there would be a common outcome for everyone, yeah. regardless yeah. of how they had lived. So he had seemed to attack the whole basis of this rather rigorous ascetical life that he was living as a, as a, as a monk. Let me go back to this doctrine of hell as offensive. Have there been people in Christian history who have said, this is an offensive doctrine, let's drop it, and what we'll do is we'll see people will appreciate that and they'll join the church? Hmm. Is there... Is there... I th- <laughs> Yeah, I think essentially that's what happened in the 19th century with the Universalist Church, which is not even known to people today as, except as part of the acronym, which is Unitarian Universalist, hyphenated, the UUs. Um, most people are not aware that around the time of the so-called Second Great Awakening, when evangelical Christianity was really rapidly spreading in the 1820s and 30s, there was on the fringe of that this movement of Christian Universalists that ultimately incorporated, they became a formally organized church. They were the fifth largest, fifth or sixth largest denomination in the U.S. during the 1850s. Wow. They were the founders of Tufts University, which is still with us today in Boston, although there's very little connection anymore. But the thing is that the, the, the theological evolution of this Universalist church was very, very telling, because, again, it was like, some of the universes say, you know, you, you Christians have the good news, but we have the better news. <laughs> and I think that was kind of the attitude of the universes. But then as it, they developed over time, their own leader, Hosea Ballou, he wrote a book in which he said, you know, God didn't, Jesus was not punished. He didn't suffer because of God's justice on the cross. Um, he was just a moral example to us. And as a result of that, later universalists in part of the universalist church concluded that maybe he wasn't divine. He could just be a moral example, a way-shower to all of us without being divine. And so they gave up the divinity of Jesus. And ironically, by the early 20th century, some of these universalist church members signed the Humanist Manifesto. They became secularists. They no longer—once heaven became open to everyone, they stopped believing in heaven. And then the final— the final coup de grace was where they joined with the Unitarians, who had, you know, the, giving up the divinity of Jesus was kind of the first step in their evolution. And so they kind of disappeared. They, and so it was a, a continuous process of theological deconstruction. Yeah. And I think that is the clearest evidence would have that things would not go very well. But why would we think there'd be a different outcome in the 21st century than there was in the 19th yeah. century? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Uh, do modern universalists like Hart or Rohr have an answer to that uh, scenario? Um, I don't think they've really addressed that. I I actually have talked one-on-one with Robin Perry, who's a well-known, who wrote this book called The Evangelical Universalist, um, originally published under a pseudonym, Gregory MacDonald, that he then came out of the closet, identified himself as the other. <laughs> I talked with Robin Perry about that, and he, he just thinks that this is overplayed, this connection of uni, uni, universalism and Unitarianism. But the, the logic, I think, is very difficult to escape. The, the logic of hell and the logic of, of the cross are connected because, you see, universes have a very, very hard time explaining why did Jesus die this hor- horrible death? Couldn't if God is just a loving God and there's and, and there's no justice factor, so to speak, mm-hmm. then couldn't God have shown His love in some other way? And the fact that I, I always go back to the Garden of Gethsemane that the, the the eternal and sinless Son of God prayed for the cup to pass Him by. Right. 
and yet he was denied. He had to drink the cup, which the clear sign that that he had to undergo this terrible death. And if if something that terrible was necessary for you, Al, and for me to be saved, then that suggests that there are there are dreadful consequences of sin, and that if we do are do not come under the covering of the blood of Christ and His His grace. That we will face those consequences. That's right. So the logic is very hard to escape. Yeah, yeah. No, I I agree with you. Uh, let me thank you so much for your work, Michael. I, it's wonderful being with you today, and it's been a great help, I know, to our listeners. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you when the new book comes out. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Dr. Michael McClyman, Universalism, the Christian Debate on Salvation for All was our topic. His book, going to have a he's going to have an abbreviated Q&A book come out sometime soon but the volume 1 and 2 the devil's redemption is exhaustive <laughs>